0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the government's new deal with France to reduce the number of asylum seekers and refugees crossing the channel in small boats. More than 40,000 would-be migrants have arrived in Britain so far this year, including 1,800 this last weekend alone The deal will see the UK's annual payment to France rise from £55 million to £63 million, with the extra £8 million helping the French authorities to increase the number of officers patrolling the coast to 300. That's a rise of around 40%. British officers will be stationed in French border control rooms and share live intelligence. Will it work? And should the UK be doing more to help desperate people fleeing war and persecution? We'll be speaking to Kolbassia Housu, who has lived experience of being trafficked into the UK after being tortured for political activism in his home country of Chad. Kolbassia founded Survivors Speak Out and is part of the Freedom From Torture campaign group. We'll also hear from Steve Valdez-Simmons from Amnesty International. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper which features content that you can't read anywhere else. There's no billionaire, no hedge fund telling us what to say. We are answerable only to our readers, people like you. So if you can take out a subscription to the Byline Times, please do. It helps to fund this podcast. You get full details over our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Kolbasia, Steve, welcome. Kolbasia, I just want to start with your personal story, if you don't mind. Just tell us a little bit about your journey to the UK as a refugee, as an asylum seeker, and whether it was an active choice on your part to come to the UK.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. And I wish it was my active choice. I know I would have planned it properly, and I would have... The UK wouldn't be my first choice, because when I... When I was fleeing, I didn't know. I didn't know much about the UK because I think Chad and the UK we didn't have have much relationship, and there's often even no embassy, or no diplomatic relationship with the UK and Chad. To, for me to know that to sit down and then like um like a picky cherry said, okay, then you know I'm I'm gonna pick yeah, going to the UK. That's not my case. If I had the opportunity to choose, I would probably choose going to Canada. But, um, you know, I had the po- opportunity to flee. That was a small window for me to flee. And then I I fled. And my initial objective is not even go that far out of Africa, but just to put four or five countries between myself and, you know, the country that I'm fleeing the torture from. And if I end up being somewhere in the west of Africa, I would have been, you know, happy. I know that I'm gonna be far away from from persecution and from torture. But, you know, through the journey, I don't think that I have a control of when I'm going to end up because I rely on on other people that have the know-how and the mean to get you somewhere, somewhere. and I end up being in the UK, and I don't regret that.
0: Now, you've been here for 10 years now, and you've been awarded an MBE, so you've proved that you are a, a valuable and useful member of UK society. and. Do you think your case is typical? I'm thinking if people are getting into small boats, then they are making a conscious choice to come to this country. From what survivors tell you, why are they making that active choice to come here?
1: I think what other survivors from the speaker Network tell me, and also from my own own experience, is that I hope that I remember the quote correctly. Someone saying, I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid that I'm not giving myself a chance, you know, to start a new life. Myself, I have to flee because I need to protect myself. I need to protect the life that I, I have. And the survival instinct, you know, took, took over. And also I know that the fear that I'm, I have behind me is much greater than fear that I have in front of me. Because I know there is a, there is a chance that I may not reach my final destination. I have my uncle that also he flee when I was young, but we did not hear from him till today, so certainly he died in trying to escape persecution and and, and torture. But I had to take that chance. It's like you're in a burning house and you find an opportunity to to flee and you, you don't you don't stop. You just you know jump and then you, you run. You run as fast as possible that you know you don't feel the heat behind you. That's a factor that quite a lot of people put because we know exactly the risk that is in front, but the risk that is in front have, have a 50-50% have a chance or you making or not making. Because you, if you stay back, you know, the torture, the persecution is a constant. The pen is more higher till you die. So you try to give yourself a chance.
0: And you were trafficked into the UK. You paid money to people who were able to get you into this country. It is said that many of the people who arrive on boats from France have been trafficked into this country in a similar way. Do you think that the measures that the UK has announced, the new agreement with the French government, will reduce the people trafficking?
1: I don't think that it will reduce. Recently, we see the numbers keep increasing. Why? Because people are not getting opportunity. People are not getting any safe route. When you're fleeing, when you're running, there is nothing that will stop you. Always going to try, and people take risk. You know, put their children, you know, on on that risk, and some people die, and so and so. By by trying just to make it even harder and harsher, we just really increasing the risk that you know people have to take. And since you know the UK government is starting with those hostility and making things difficult for people, did it reduce the number of people who try to cross? Absolutely not. That can tell us something, that when a human being wants to get somewhere where they feel that that's where they're going to be safe and that's where they're going to start a new life, nothing in this planet can stop them doing so.
0: Steve, what do you make of the government's deal with the French authorities?
2: It's pretty depressing, Adrian. I mean, I entirely agree with Colbassia there. The deal that has just been made, like all the previous ones that have been made, by the way, doesn't address the basic need of the people who should be at the heart of all this. People make these crossings, not for some jolly, it's an extremely dangerous thing to do, people know that. And they wouldn't do it if they had some safe alternative. So if we keep just making these crossings more and more dangerous, keep making our systems more and more menacing, I'm afraid we will keep just passing more and more power to the smuggling gangs, the people traffickers, who will keep abusing the same people and keep profiting from this. And we should all want an end to that. When I've discussed this on the
0: podcast before, Steve, and it's been on more than one occasion, as I'm sure you're aware, people have sometimes responded to me by saying, look, there are migrants who've arrived on the northern coast of France. This is a civilised country where the rule of law is respected. Why then do people seek to risk their lives by crossing the channel in a small
2: boat? Why not simply apply for asylum in France? Well, if you go to northern France and you see the circumstances of the particular people we are talking about, you can see the answer to that. And in fact, we're paying for that. We are paying for French gendarmes to go around basically bullying and beating people, tearing apart their limited shelter, not providing them any safe access to anything at all, but making their life thoroughly miserable and dangerous for that matter, and making them ever more reliant on the people who offer them a chance at a journey across the water. But on top of that, we ought to recognise that yes, France does owe an obligation to everybody on its territory, at the same time france receives into its asylum system many many more people than do we and we have obligations too we're supposed to be sharing responsibility with other countries including france instead we are perpetuating this miserable wretched unsafe life for people who are entitled to seek asylum and whom we should be helping
0: Colbassia, a few weeks ago, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, used the phrase invasion with reference to migrants crossing the Channel on small boats into the UK. As someone who has made a similar journey yourself, what did you make of that language?
1: I think the language of the Home Secretary is really inflammatory and also creating division and also Pushing people like myself, because when I was when I was coming, I was absolutely vulnerable. And quite a, most people that try to cross right now, they're very vulnerable people. And also here, they're still vulnerable people. I, I have seen war in Chad, and I have seen invasion of Chad land by Libyan. That's why we call it invasion. I have seen, currently we seen invasion in Ukraine. That's what we are talking about. Invasion when it's army coming and then taking over your country. And when the Home Secretary using that language, what what message is she, she telling people to do? To take gun and go protect against the invasion? Those kind of inflammatory rhetoric that is creating much, much hostility and anti-refugee. I think it's really important that we understand that we need to share responsibility. And by you know agreeing those those deal. Yes, it's good to agree those deal, but agreed on what term? Term of you know helping people. People are suffering there in the north of France. And what support are we giving to people? If we want people to integrate integrate the system in France, what are we doing to allow those people to integrate in the Asylum system in France? What are we doing with just only making the suffering of people more acute so that, you know, people need to find other alternatives and that alternative is to come to the UK.
0: Steve, I was chatting to an MP from a so-called Red Wall constituency at the weekend. I'm not going to name the MP because this was an off-the-record discussion. They're a Conservative MP in a traditional Labour seat. And they said to me, and I'm sure you'll feel uncomfortable with this, I'm sure Colbassia will feel uncomfortable with this, and I said to the MP that I felt uncomfortable with this. But the MP said that the language used by soila Braverman had gone down well with their constituents.
2: Well, I'm sure it did go down well with some constituents, just as much as I'm sure, shockingly, it will have gone down well with the sorts of people who committed the action only days before she mused that term of throwing firebombs at people held at Western jet foil, having made this particular journey. Politicians, you know, if, if they're serious about wanting to lead us, lead our society, our communities, they have to take responsibility for the language they use and they have to take responsibility for the consequences of inflaming people's anger, suspicion, prejudices, dare I say it, people have them, we all do. If they want to lead, it's for them to change these things. But instead, I'm sorry to say, it's not just conservative MPs, I'm afraid it's across our political spectrum, has been for a very long time. Too many of our politicians prefer to be led by populist voices because that gets attention and they think that will get them votes. But in the long run, what is it doing? It is making our society sick, hateful, harmful, and it is certainly doing no good at all for anyone but people smugglers and people profiting from human misery. Why on earth is that to be celebrated?
0: I recently heard Rishi Sunak talking about the need to stop illegal migration. He wasn't pulled up on that by the interviewer. And I was a little bit surprised because it is entirely legal to seek asylum in the UK. You are not illegal until you have been refused asylum and gone through the entire process. So we can't know whether people are illegally seeking to remain in the UK until their asylum application has been dealt with and properly processed. What do we need to do, in your view, to make it easier for the UK to meet its international obligations?
2: It's not hard. We have an asylum system. I mean, barely now, because our government has largely crashed it over the last couple of years by effectively refusing to decide the claims of the people who've arrived. And so we now have these huge backlogs.
0: The figure I saw suggested that only 4% of asylum applications has currently been processed, 96% outstanding.
2: It was only 4% of all the claims made in the whole of 2021 have been decided by roughly now. So essentially 96% of all the claims made in that year haven't been dealt with. In fact, there are now huge backlogs of people waiting over three years for a decision on their claim, and even several people waiting over five years for decisions. And this is all because if you build backlogs and refuse to deal with claims, the whole thing does become overwhelming. That's nothing to do with the people who are simply asking for asylum. It's everything to do with government's refusal to manage our asylum system properly. And for crying out loud, European countries, which, by the way, don't receive disproportionately large numbers of refugees from around the world, but European countries certainly receive more people than do we. And they have been managing in their asylum systems with many more claims than has this country over many, many years. And yet somehow our politicians have managed to persuade us that it's France and Germany and Belgium and Italy that should be doing more even though they're already doing far more than us, rather than us that actually should be pulling our weight in the world. So, yes, just get on and deal with people's claims. Decide who is entitled to be here. Do it as fairly and as quickly as possible and then allow people to get on with their lives. They're allowed to stay. And if it's true and if it's fair to decide that they don't have good claims, then, yes, do take steps to return them to the places that they have come from. But you cannot do any of that if you will not make your asylum system function properly, fairly and efficiently. And we've chosen not to for some years now. And until that
0: point, the point at which their application has been dealt with, they cannot accurately be described as illegal.
2: Well, it's worse than that, isn't it? Because we know from the data that the Home Office publishes that for the few people who have had their claims decided over the last few years, the very great majority have been found to be entitled to asylum. So we know that most people arriving have good claims to make. So we should stop all this stupid rhetoric. It doesn't help anybody. It's not deciding the claims. It's not helping people understand the asylum system and what it's for. So, end all that and concentrating on managing the system rather than, frankly, talking nonsense about it.
0: Colbassia, the figures show that more than seven out of 10 people who apply for asylum to this country are legitimate applicants under the system as it exists. But, There are people who seek to come to the UK as economic migrants. I listened to a very interesting Radio 4 programme. A reporter was in Albania, and certainly there are traffickers in Albania getting people into the UK because those people want a better life for themselves. How do we deal with that?
1: You know, that's why the rule of law is there. That's why the Refugee Convention is there. That's why, you know, the asylum system is put in place in order to process people, right, fairly and with respect. And then at the end, you determine if somebody requires protection, you give them the protection. And if somebody does not require protection, so you don't give them the protection. But first and foremost is giving opportunity for people to put the case forward so that, you know, you can make the determination on the decision. But that's something that is really lacking for, for many, 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 many years now. I was among the seven out of 10. I don't like to use that word illegal, but I was also considered illegal. And then yeah. at the end of the day, I was granted a refugee protection, which I am absolutely delighted and grateful that I was given that opportunity. With the way that my life turned out to be and, you know, the friendship that I built in this country, how people treated me with respect, with dignity, with welcoming, and every inch of my energy I tried to put back into the community, into the society to make this country that I feel grateful about it to be even a greater country. And then I felt a responsibility to do that and to do it in a way which we need to have an asylum system, which treat people with respect and with dignity and apply, you know, the refugee convention, apply the law and determine if somebody require protection or not require protection. And then, you know, like in my case, given protection or not given protection. And it's it's easy to do instead of going there, having an anti-refugee narrative rhetoric and creating hostility for vulnerable people and making division so that it makes even difficult for the seven out of ten people that get the protection, even integrate into society and contribute to the society.
0: Did you find a difference between the political rhetoric and the rhetoric that we're hearing now around asylum seekers and refugees and the lived experience as a migrant to this country
1: absolutely absolutely it's like a day and night i'm just going to give you a little anecdote yeah when i came here i love football and also i love arsenal i go i go in a pub right that's a culture that's different from me i think in my country we don't have a pub that you go watch your football but i know that that's a place where i go go watch football i go there and I keep watching football, and then people are approaching me, and then we, we start talking, you know, we start talking, and I end up, you know, invited to integrate, uh, you know, football, you know, the the Saturday or the Sunday league football, and I start really connecting with the culture of this country. We start connecting with people. And what I have seen is only love and compassion and respect and that's my day-to-day experience and that's what allow me honestly to embrace the united kingdom and embrace the people from here and give me the confidence to do what i have done you know so far
0: that's such a cheering testimony i have to say galbasi oh, that's those are beautiful words and I've mentioned before on the podcast that my dad was a refugee to this country. He was an asylum seeker who was welcomed to this country. And Steve, I think many of us will feel very uncomfortable about the language used by politicians because they are, in some cases, the government of our country. But in this respect, they don't always represent the views of the broad spectrum of people in this country.
2: I'm sorry to say that I don't think uncomfortableness with some of the language is enough. I think we should be outraged at some of the language. And I also think that you're entirely right in how you put the question to me. Too many politicians are pandering to a very vocal minority who are given expression and opportunity for expression in all sorts of places, who seem to have nothing but anger and hate to offer And yet there are many, many, many people who feel profoundly different. And it may well be, as is often said, that there is a larger group of the population that are somewhere confusedly, to some extent, in between, unsure, but are liable to be led by the greater noise that politicians give to much of that hate and anger. Rather than having the courage to stand up for it, sorry, stand up to it and address it on behalf of the rest of us, which is what they should be doing. So I think it's dreadful, some of the language that is used, including by the most senior of politicians. And as I say, it's not about one political party. This is something that from time to time comes up in our politics pretty much across the political space, and it really needs to be stamped out.
0: I think it's worth drawing a distinction here between England and Scotland, for example, where I think it's fair to say there is a more general welcome across the political spectrum for refugees and asylum seekers, perhaps to an extent in Wales as well. And I was speaking to Stephen Farry, Alliance MP in Northern Ireland, on the Byline Times podcast a couple of weeks ago. And from a Northern Irish perspective, he was also suggesting that there should be a more welcoming stance towards asylum seekers and refugees. One of the great ironies of this, Steve, is at the moment, the UK, pending the forthcoming recession has pretty much full employment. We have labor shortages in some areas of the economy, in many areas of the economy. And you'd think a canny politician might see some means of leveraging the number of people who want to come and live here, many of whom have great skills with the fact that we do have these labor shortages.
2: I think it's certainly right to think about that connection, although it's not what should be driving our response to the need of refugees, which is who we're talking about now, who have an entitlement to safety and protection. It's not because of what they can offer us that that we should be meeting our asylum obligations. Actually, it's all about us playing a responsible part in the world, sharing responsibility with others. But nonetheless, it's certainly true That there are many people whose lives, frankly, are being frittered away in limbo, in misery, in our asylum system, not permitted to work, not permitted to do anything to sustain and look after themselves, to keep themselves busy in some meaningful way. And that's debilitating, profoundly debilitating. And so, yes, we would strongly support thinking more about opportunities for people to work while they're waiting for their claims to be decided, then yes, that would be good for the wider community too. But the focus here really ought to be on the people, people who've suffered torture, terror, dreadful things in their home countries, incredibly awful traumas on the journeys to get here, and now, unfortunately, new traumas in the system That is increasingly menacing towards them. That is not a humane, responsible, civilized approach. And we should be thoroughly ashamed of ourselves. And we should expect our politicians to offer something fundamentally different.
1: Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with Steve. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I say, What are we turning into? If we just look 50 years ago, who said? The world toward a more protective human right, compassionate role after the World War II, after the Holocaust. And you will see that Britain is one key among the country. And what is contrast today is beyond belief. And for us to stand up and lecture the world about human rights and what we're doing to people that come in here seeking our protections. I think we're losing the ground to be one of the leading countries in that regard.
0: Kolbasiya, thank you so much for your time. Kolbasiya Hayusu. Thanks also to Steve Valdez-Simmons. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times, which as I speak is being put to bed so don't miss out please subscribe if you can you get more details over at bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com your subscriptions will get you a wonderful monthly newspaper where you can read content that you won't see anywhere else and you're helping to support this podcast as well so please do it if you can and if you have already done it thank you very much indeed we'll see you all again very soon but for now thank you and goodbye